Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. These podcasts are just one of several free services we provide to the mountain athlete community. We have a prodigious amount of free information and videos on our website, uphillathlete.com, covering mountaineering, alpinism, ski mountaineering, skimo, and mountain running. So please check it out. Today, I'm going to be talking with Damon Tedford, who recently returned from su successful climbs of both Mount Everest and Lhotse. While Damon and I have had sporadic communications over the past couple of years using our phone consultation service, he's been completely self-coached, using first our book, Training for the New Alpinism, to create his own training plan for their first couple of training cycles. But then for his final training buildup prior to the Everest-Lhotse trip, he bought and used our 24-week expeditionary mountaineering plan and slightly modified it because we considered those plans to be the bare minimum needed to succeed, and Damon's fitness was high enough that he, he needed some additional training load. This is where our phone consultation service came, came into play. Damon is a former member of the Canadian Light Infantry and has been through the U.S. Army's grueling ranger school. He's an emergency room medical doctor in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he lives with his wife, who's also an avid climber and ski mountaineer. His four-man Everest Lhotse team spent a considerable amount of time and thought developing a team philosophy, training together, and being ready for, for the demands that the climb was, climbs were going to impose upon them. They also did something that was somewhat unique in that they developed a set of standard operating procedures to help them streamline their decision-making processes on the mountain. During this discussion, I think you'll, you'll see that Damon is very open and very humble about the style in which he climbed the mountain, and he conveys his terrific respect and the debt that he owes to the people who helped him along the way, from, from his wife to the Sherpa. We, we hope that you'll gain some useful insights that help you in your personal mountain journey. There'll be included in the show notes a couple of links that Damon makes reference to during, the, during our talk. So I hope you enjoy this one. Well, before we started recording this, you mentioned something about ranger school. Um, so is, is, does the Canadian Army have a ranger school as well, or did you go to the U.S.? Yeah, so basically, um, I'm like, just to give a quick uh, of who I am, uh, I used to be in the, um, an infantry officer with uh, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and one of the opportunities that we had with the Americans was we would send down a few soldiers to do, to do ranger school. So I actually um, had the opportunity to, to do that. Um, so that's why, I've, why I've just, I just mentioned it. Well, after ranger school, Everest probably feels like a bit of a vacation. Everybody I've talked to that's been through ranger school has said it's, it's uh, pretty damn challenging. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it certainly is. I, I mean, without uh, basically what you're doing is you're doing like heavy loads, hiking, patrolling, and then the, uh, they're trying to replicate as close as possible stressors of, of war. And one of those things is they just don't give you much food. So um, I literally can remember how tuned in my senses were when I could smell a, a colleague opening up a peanut butter package from, you know, 50 meters away. Um, but yeah, it, it was a fantastic experience. I was really lucky to get down there and, and do it. I would, I mean, we're going to get into the whole Everest story, of course, but I would suspect that from a both, obviously from a physical standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint, 
that's a pretty damn good preparation for you know any kind of big mountaineering trip because you know as you well know and i think most of our listeners know mountaineering and alpinism or whatever you want to call it is primarily about suffering and yeah. you know and you know, minimum you know, the, and the better you are at suffering the less it's going to take less mental toll it will take on you and and clearly from again from everything i've heard about ranger school there's a, there's no shortage of suffering during ranger school yeah for sure and in, and in the, you know to be to be fair to the other uh, like branches of of the army air force and navy there's always some stress inoculation that you're trying to to place on on any like soldier, sailor, or airman that is beneficial because what you end up doing by exposing yourself to that that stress is you really do inoculate yourself to it. The next time you're at fate, you face something stressful, you can think back on that training that you did and remember how you you overcame it, and uh, it just makes you more resilient as as a person and as a climber. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I've I it's one of the things I counsel folks that I speak with uh, frequently who are relatively new to this, the, this whole mountaineering um, climbing type experience is that you, know, you, you need that exposure and especially you need that exposure in a, this specific terrain. You need that stress, the stressors to be you know, like walking on uneven terrain, you know, rough ground and crampons or, uh, you know, being sleep deprived in the mountains, you know, having a really a night where you just don't sleep and because it's too uncomfortable. And until you've had those experiences, you can't simulate that. You can't go to the gym and simulate any of that kind of experience. Yes, you can increase your strength or your aerobic capacity in the gym, but you just don't get that same kind of, of stress. And so, and I think that inoculation is a great term i've been actually searching for a term to use for this yeah. so now thank you for letting me i'm going no to copy your word there i like it it sounds impressive too but you're you get to use that word like words like that because you're a doctor too right so you well you yeah there's uh, there's not a lot of stress inoculation uh, patients are usually coming uh, to see me for alleviating sort of stress and that kind of thing but it was a big thing about creating like training whenever you're doing like live fire exercises in the uh um, when I was doing workup training for deployments overseas, you want to replicate as close as possible. And much like here, you know, this is this theory is very similar to uphill athlete. You want to create training that replicates what you're going to do. Um, and that, uh, so that's what spoke to me about, uh, about uphill athlete as well as having succeeded, uh, um, in the, in the infantry, like seeing how it worked when our battalion was getting ready to go overseas with realistic training. Um, like throwing grenades, like getting comfortable with um, some of these weapon systems that are, are dangerous and can be can be scary. There's a lot of similarities to that realism um, in the training that uh, that uphill athlete um, well has within its uh, within the book. Yeah, yeah, and that, it's interesting because that's from a. And I know we've touched on this a little bit uh, off off camera here, but I think it's in, I'd like to bring it up uh, that, you know, traditionally that's the way climbers learned their craft was to go out and you know, dip their toe into a stressful situation in the mountains and hopefully come back alive, but you know, wiser, stronger with that, you know, with some of that stress inoculation you're talking about. And it was often, you know, years and years to develop as, as it probably should be in order to do it safely. And I think that that's sort of what Steve and I brought to our concept of training with uphill athlete is 
yes, you have to expose yourself to these kinds of situations in order to get comfortable with them. I mean, if you've, if you've never, you know, had to hack out a, a ledge on an icy slope and spend the night there, then the first time you do that, it's going to be an incredibly stressful situation. But after you've done it a few times and you realize, oh yeah, it's going to be kind of a crappy night tonight, but you know, tomorrow we'll yeah. be okay. Then it, you, you do get to handle it. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've, um, begun to learn with with the uh, with the more, the popularity of of guided climbing being what it is today is a lot of people get tossed into situations that they really aren't physically or psychologically very well prepared for and then it as you know it, it not only can be uncomfortable it can be downright dangerous when that happens for sure yeah. So I still advocate very strongly for people when they come to me or, or generally we do this as a business that when people come to us with a goal that when after we've talked to this person, we realize, you know, that's a pretty darn big goal for, for anybody. And the fact that you have never climbed a mountain and you want to go do X, Y, or Z, maybe you should consider, we, we often will try to encourage people to set up intermediate type goals. Okay, right. you want to go climb Everest? Great. How about two or three years from now? And in between, yeah. there's going to be all these uh, intermediate climbs that you will do, during which you will learn things that you didn't even know existed, let alone that you didn't know them. So, And, it, and that's proven to be quite successful for people, and it, and it allows them to, to go do these things and, and actually enjoy it, you know, come yeah. back with as opposed to having it be just a death march and, and you know, survive sure. everything. You know, and, and Scott, you bring up a, a good point of just about, eh, I can't remember where I heard this, but you don't get good negative, if, well, if you get negative feedback from the mountain, it could be catastrophic. Uh, so, if, I mean, if you don't have somebody that you can ask questions of, or you can go out and, and learn the basics and learn what, what is safe, you can get into this false sense of security. Like maybe you don't rope up and cross this, um, uh, this glacier and you do it 15 times, without any problems that doesn't mean that what you did was safe it just means you were you were lucky so um so what i'm getting at with that is yeah it's great to get out with people that are that are, are trained and can point out some of the, the stuff that you can't even you don't even notice as as a recreationist or a beginner in in, in any sort of alpinism yeah well it's like you mentioned earlier that you know working with professionals working with experts is always helpful. I mean, and that's, yeah. that I think is one of the, with the more, more common use of guides these days, people can accelerate their learning curve dramatically compared to, you know, when I was <clears> a kid and learning to climb and, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, read a few books and went out and almost killed ourselves a number of times. And I was yeah. lucky through it all, but I mean, we yeah. didn't, we did not really we didn't have, there was no structure, no organization. We didn't have, you know, the only person that you just went out with somebody who knew like 5% more than you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. That was the way we learned. And, and we learned, we learned by making a lot of mistakes, but I think it's, it is possible now by especially hiring a good guide. I mean, often people will ask me about, you know, going to some sort of a mountaineering school or a course with 10 other students. And I'll say, you know, if you really want to learn this, hire a private guide. You can learn more in like two days with a private yeah. guide than you can in a week with a, a group because the guide's going to be focused on you and your needs and, and you know, going to be able to adjust the program to fit what it is, you know, where you're weak and where you're strong. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the, exactly. And you just get, to, and you can ask questions of them. And the other thing too, is if, um, 
you could be limited by the people that are that are in your group, uh, depending on what you're 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 doing. Um, I've always been lucky. I've been able to grab some some old military buddies or or just colleagues that are um, um, enthusiasts um, to get out there and, and and do things. And we're all kind of of the same um, fitness level. And we don't even we kind of like every now and then having a bit of a, an epic. And I mean. I don't mean that like we go out looking for danger, but some of those climbs I've been on are that were we had a, a problem were and we had to use our mountaineering skills and, and think about things and overcome them have been some of the most rewarding experiences um, that, that we've had. Um, like we just tried, my buddy and I, we tried to do Mount uh, Slessy here, which is um, a mountain just in, in Chilliwack. And uh, my buddy's a, an optimist. At, at, he's like, we can do this. Um, so we had started off to go up the, um, are you, you're familiar with the climb? I take it. The so. Northeast buttress. Or yeah, exactly. Yep. That's exactly the one. So, uh, we are a reasonable climbers. We, we had read the, um, the, the route description, but we, we got off route. We started climbing before we got actually onto the proper buttress and then it started to rain. And so we're halfway up this, um, this mountain and then we have to, to turn around and, and rappel down and it turned out to be like a 24 hour, um, send mission just to get back to, to base camp and um it was it's going to be one of the the climbs that i'll remember you know it'll be definitely a top five climb just because we over overcame that and yeah. and that's why the mountains are great even if you don't achieve the objective you're out in the hills you're usually hanging out with somebody you you enjoy um and you're just it's it's just a, and that's what i love about it is just being out there and and working with uh, with the team and being in the wilderness, yeah. And and learning. I mean, I had a, actually had a similar experience on Slessy one time, where you know, we were the first time I went there. We were going to climb the, the entire route from the from the bottom instead of doing that ramp traverse coming in from the left uh, above the okay. glacier. Okay. Yeah. So we yep. start we started at the bottom, which I don't recommend. The bottom is like <laughs> five or six pitches of you know you know, vertical bushwhacking, um, so heavily vegetated. And then we got high on the buttress and just like with you, it started to pour rain on us. Um, but it's you know, learning to deal with those kinds of you know, circumstances that are beyond your control and being and getting developed in the confidence to be able to get your ass out of the fire when yeah. you need to. And you come away with that. And not only is it something you remember, like I just said, I remember that climb forever. Yeah. You will too. Um, but you you come away much wiser and and uh you know with a new uh, more skills um perhaps absolutely yeah yeah, yeah and, and that's and what and i think one of the biggest things in the mountains is the skill to know when to turn around um yeah that's that is and it's there's it's hard to really hard to teach that skill and and i've always been an, an advocate of you know and like steve too i mean uh, going light I, i'd rather go too light so that I'm more forced to turn around huh. than thinking, yeah. oh, I've got enough stuff in my pack to bivouac. And, and then it turns yeah. out to be a, a four-day storm instead of just a little sprinkle overnight. Whereas in my case, I would just rather you know, turn tail and run and come back another day you know, yeah. rather than try to just forge ahead because I've got enough stuff in my, my rucksack. That's a, maybe I'll deal with my buddy James. I'll just take out some of uh, the stuff out of his pack, and uh, he'll be he'll be less of the optimist. He's always like, "No, no, Damon, we got this. We can do this." Um, so we're we're a good uh, good team. I tend to be a little bit more cautious, but maybe I'll just do that. I'll either put rocks in his uh, climbing bag or take out some of his essential gear and 
next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did you, you, are you from Vancouver? Did you start climbing or did you start climbing after you got there? Or how did you get into climbing? Uh, yeah, I'm actually from uh, uh, Prince Edward Island. That's where I grew up. So uh, way mm -hmm. on the East coast of yeah. Canada. And then I moved out here with my wife back in, after we finished our medical training in uh, 2013 and that's really when we started to get into the mountains we took a, a basic mountaineering course and saw what bc had to offer and just tried to get out as as often as as we could and took up skiing and other um alpine uh, pursuits um yeah and that's how we we got into it and then lauren actually my my wife wanted to get into wanted to do um aconcagua and we'd already done Kilimanjaro just after we'd graduated and, and enjoyed it. And then she wanted to go do Aconcagua, which we did with um, a guided group and, and really enjoyed it. Um, and then from there, we've been doing other trips with friends. We went to Everest Base Camp in 2015. And then we've done uh, um, we had some trips to Rainier and, and the local mountains. Yeah. Was it the trip to Everest Base Camp that suddenly inspired the desire to climb the mountain or had that been something that you'd been thinking about for longer? Yeah. I, I, I think that with, with Everest or, um, is once you start hanging out with the, the, the people that are going up there, you, I, it's kind of this intoxicating, I, I don't, I don't want to call it group think, but, um, you start to meet people and you see that the energy and the passion you hear about it, how excited they are. Um, of course, the mountains got a, a lore of its of its own. Um, but in in 2015, I went up there with with a friend and we climbed Lobachet. So he was doing that as an acclimatization climb. He said, "Hey, Damon, why don't you come along on this on this climb?" It was Larry Dordry, who's also our, our team lead for the Everest expedition this year. And uh, I did that and with my wife again, and we were like, "This was this was great." Um, and so, unfortunately, that year, uh, Larry had to turn around at the the South Summit. And uh, when he was looking at going back again, I thought this was a perfect opportunity. It was never really a, like something I, I like, I'm not a guy that's been thinking about this for multiple years, but I saw an opportunity to do something that yes, what seemed after being there, like it'd be a great expedition and being able to go with some friends um, and knowing that you, you really enjoy the time with them and um, you've worked with them on a team before it, the opportunity was just too much to, to resist. Yeah. Did, did anybody besides Larry have you know, I, that 8,000 meter experience or was he kind of the only one? Um, he was, he was the only one that, that had it before we did this expedition. I had only been up to, um, I'd done Ama de Blom um, with, with Larry, actually just in the uh, last October here. Um, and um, I'd done a Concagua. So that was the highest I'd, I'd been, was up to 69,000 uh, ish meters. Yeah. Well, 69 is pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not comfortable being above 7,000 meters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> And so when the, this, this germ of the idea took place, how many, was it mostly friends, all friends that, that ended up going on the trip? Yeah, it was, um, so Larry and I were the, uh, and another fellow named, uh, named Brent were, uh, were sort of the core of, of the group. Um, and then we had a few, um, because we got delayed, it started off um, back in 2019, um, trying to get, get ready for this expedition. Um, we had another um, gentleman join us um, that was a friend of a friend. And Larry had climbed with him on Orizaba, so he knew a little bit about him. And 
Um, Larry told us a little bit about this fellow. He seemed like a great guy, and he was a great fellow to join the team. And yeah, and we're now since um, good friends. But it was a it was a small group. It was um, four guys. That was that was it. So that so I mean, you, having. Oh, well, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, I was going to say then. So just the four of you. Did you you must have contracted with a trekking agent to you know use their base camp facility, or did you, did you use a guide service? Did you how did you? I think people will be interested yeah. in the, like the logistics and just how you set all that up. Yeah, for sure. So um, back I, back in in uh, twenty seventeen or twenty fifteen. Oh, correction, 2017. Larry had had gone um, over there with um, Seven Summits, and uh, so we were using them again for their their logistics and organizing our um, our Sherpa support. Um, so Larry was the the team leader, and we went over as. Um, so we we didn't use a, a North American guide service. We just went directly to Seven Summits, which ends up being this this was one of the things that i didn't realize about all these guiding services that are over there really seven summits does a large majority of the the logistics even for some of the the major uh, climbing um organized organizations from north america so we went directly to them and asked them to uh to help us out and we had met uh, some sherpas um that and in fact, uh, Temba Bote, who's our our lead sherpa, just a fantastic and skilled individual. He um, we ended up climbing Amadeblan with him and asked him to to come with us um, on Everest. So the way Larry Larry was the expedition um, lead, um, and that gave him a little bit more control over making decisions on when we could go, um, or and and when we wouldn't go. Um, and we also had a bit more of a constrained uh, timeline than some of the other traditional climbers that were there. Um, yeah, I don't know how much you want to go into that, Scott, but I'll just a quick uh, sideline. Like um, seven, seven Summits has this other um, organization called 14, I think it's called 14 Peaks. Uh, in any case, there was a lot, if you're an individual that wants to, to go and use Seven Summits, you can get... Um, placed in this international group, which was a very nice group of, of people, but it was a bunch of individuals sort of, my understanding was they, they met on the mountain mm -hmm. and then went up where it was different with us as we, we came as a team to, to the mountain. Yeah. And so they, but they organized all the, the, uh, the porters and the base camp facilities for you and that sort of stuff. And then supplied high altitude Sherpas, I assume. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, basically. So uh, my, my colleague Larry has a organization called Radiating Hope. And what uh, they do is in uh, they uh, supply um, training and radiation oncology equipment um, to um, to organizations. I think they're in um, they're in Nepal. They're in uh, I think they're in and around Kilimanjaro as well. Um, in any case, so one of the things he does in order to raise money for these organizations and awareness is to do treks um, to Everest Base Camp. So we used um, the organization that he has to get us to Everest Base Camp. And then from there, it was Seven Summits with their Sherpas um, that were assisting us um, above uh, Base Camp. Yeah. It sounds like you had a really good system dialed. That's great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And so the... I perhaps we should uh, talk a little bit. I know you you'd mentioned some uh, that like your team had its uh, a philosophy that I assume everybody yeah, was sure. kind of aligned on. And can you give us a little background on that? 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many things, and I hope to get into definitely some of the key things that made this such a successful uh, operation. But one of them was definitely team dynamics and team leadership. So Larry had been there before. He was our our leader. And early on, we we really created a philosophy like we want it. We want to get this done. Larry had been there before and had been to the South Summit, had to turn around for weather, and was like, "Guys, I I just I want to get to the top. Um, let's let's make this happen." So we sought out to to control the variables that were mostly under our, our control. It's certainly personal fitness, nutrition, sleep, that sort of thing, but also with the team philosophy and what worked out really well especially because we had sort of three years to prepare with COVID canceling our um, expedition in that in 2020 um, to really like get granular about some things like I, we could talk about, um, I mean, the army uses the term standard operating procedures. I like that term just because what it allows you to do in times of crisis or urgency is to take out some of the critical thinking that might need to happen um, in a, a life-threatening event um, we took that a little we certainly discussed those those things but we also talked about some of the moral issues that I was a bit troubled by like one of those things is as a physician is this mountain there's there's some people that um, depending on who you talk to shouldn't shouldn't be on the mountain or and maybe get into a, a nasty situation just from circumstance um, like overcrowding running out of oxygen that sort of thing and it was going to be you know what do we do as a team when those things those things happen what do we do as a team when you see a team member who is clearly in in distress um, you, you know for instance we had all agreed that if it gets to a point where a team member says you need to turn around, we would just agree and and, and turn around ourselves. Um, and that can be hard whenever you've invested a bunch of time and money. Um, so we we had standardized some of those things to take off the the cognitive load of uh, of complex situations. The thinking that'd be required to answer those when you're tired, uh, maybe you're mildly hypoxic and not thinking straight. So we really got into the the, the granular things. And I was worried about this thing, like meeting somebody that we would have to, to help. And, and so you come up with some things that help you out. I carried some, some decks, some IM decks in my pocket. It just made me feel better that if I was going up there, um, I, I could, I could do, do something. Now let's be honest. The Sherpas are, are going to be solving the majority of the problems, but that was just something with, our team and the way Larry had, had sort of set it up. We were very open and communicating about things and things we were anxious about. And that was one of mine. And we were able to work that out as a team. And we're, we were all over the place. Larry's up in Alaska. Um, Brent and uh, uh, my other colleague, Jeremy, were down in Utah. So we'd be, you know, chatting on um, um, uh, WhatsApp or even sending little like Marco videos to each other, uh, just to kind of stay in contact. And we really had, I, I thought, a solid team when we, when we finally arrived. I think team dynamics play such a, a huge role in these sort of stressful situations, or can play a huge role in these stressful situations. And, you know, I, I'm, you're probably familiar with this being a backcountry skier, but, you know, with all the studies that have been done on, on avalanche accidents, you know, the most important factor in avalanche, more important, I think, than predicting snowpack is what are the team dynamics? You know, yeah. Um, 
And if you've got somebody who is not really, you, you need to, like you said, you need to be on this sort of standard operating procedure and all in agreement on what that, those standing operating procedures are so that, you know, when the weather is like this, we don't cross that glacier or we don't go, we don't go out onto that slope when we have a sense that the conditions are such and such. And, and I've just, I mean, having been in this mountain world now since, you know, gosh, 50 some years, I have seen so many accidents and, and even been part of them, frankly, I have to confess, um, I've been in, I've made mistakes and had friends, be, had friends killed. And there's definitely been times where it would, the problem was the team dynamics. You know, there was the, the communications weren't as clear and open as what, what you guys established. I think it's phenomenally wise to have, have established that before you even got on the mountain. Rather right. than get on the mountain and find it, you've got, I mean, uh, my experience on K2 was one of uh, terrific discord. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing more people didn't die. Um, and I, I think that that's so common in mountaineering and climbing in particular because it's, it's really such an individual sport. So people yeah. are, you know, it's not, a, it's not a team event. And so you can get all these strong individual personalities pulled together, you know, for this climb. And they're all thinking about it in a different way. They're coming to it with different motivations, different risk tolerances. So obviously risk tolerance is, is yeah. a huge part of all this. And if, if, they're, if you're not aligned, then boy, I just have seen it go bad really quickly on a number of occasions. And it, I, so I commend you for having done that. And I, I hope people hear this and, and strive toward I mean, this may be as important and certainly in terms of safety, as important yeah. as, you know, the physical preparation even um, to ensure that you're going to have a chance of coming back. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, again, that, just a, another factor. And I think what, what made this so successful is we had a, a great team and some smart guys able to kind of work through these difficult um, situations to figure out a way to, you can't, you know, you can't get rid of every risk, but you can certainly think critically about it and figure, yeah, and develop either a plan for it or, you know, adjust your tolerance to the, to the risk for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And being open about it, you know, and, and mm -hmm. also it, it, it usually those kind of things uh, involve burying your soul a little bit and maybe putting your ego aside. And again, climbers have no shortage of big egos. Um, people who want to climb these yeah. big mountains typically want to, you know, they're, they're type A hard charging super achievers who tend to have, you know, I'm not telling, not saying anything. I think people don't agree with here. They yeah. have a pretty high opinion of themselves and their abilities. And that's, yeah, kind sure. of, that's because that's what's gotten them to where they are in life, whether it's in the mountains or in the rest of their lives. And so it's, that has been a, a really successful tool for them to be able to rely on themselves. And now all of a sudden you're telling them, no, no, you don't get to, you know, you don't get to be that person. You've got to put those kind of thoughts secondary to the well-being of the team. And that can be a real challenge. You know, I've been involved in some rather heated debates in the mountains with team members and other people. So, yeah, this yeah, is, an, I really like your approach. Yeah, well, thanks. And it's, I mean, it wasn't just mine. Again, this was an entire team, like an environment that, that really Larry had created being on other um, expeditions that, uh, yeah, really allowed for that openness and, and honesty and for us to kind of confess, you know, fears and things that we're anxious about so we could address them as a team. So it was, it was great. And, and to be, to get to even more to one of my colleagues ended up unfortunately getting um, high altitude pulmonary edema and um, 
he, he had to turn around um, and we were able to have a conversation about that and, you know, kind of like strategize about, you know, is this something that you can, you can deal with? What resources do we have in base camp to actually get a diagnosis? I mean, when you have like, I guess, even if you have COVID, it, it wouldn't matter. You're still probably going to need to do the same thing, which is go down. But um, we just developed a strategy to kind of, to manage that um, and, and work together. So yeah, it was, it was very successful to have that relationship with, and, and to be in a small team too, obviously there's a number of other advantages to that. So you can move faster and that sort of thing. But that was definitely one was people being great communicators. And I, and I know you've said that you felt like your fitness was good on the mountain. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the steps you took. Uh, obviously you live in a, a place where training opportunity there's no shortage of training opportunities sure. and both from yeah. a, you know s developing your skills but also developing your fitness um and a lot of people of course won't have quite that the access that you have out, right out your back door in vancouver but what were you using for your training uh, i mean i know originally before we spoke the first time i think you had uh, had been just using training for the new alpinism Right. Yeah. So I, again, just to maybe chart the course a little bit, because I, I was able to go through this training program a, a few times, um, but initially I bought the book back uh, before uh, probably in early 2019, went through it um, and developed my own, my own training plan. And we had talked a few times just about, about tweaking things. Um, but initially, just because I, I work as an emergency physician, it, it'd be easier to go just, especially when you're doing the longer hours, easier just to go to the stairmaster and do like i mean this is torture now i can't even think i did this but uh, three hours on the stairmaster and i remember talking to you when when i was getting i'd gone through it a second time for denali and again covid had uh ixnayed that and then the third time when i came to you and i was like sky i think i need some some coaching here or maybe a training plan i i need something new because i'm I've burnt myself out on these treadmills and um, and and the stairmasters. And and you were good about it. You're like, and you'd said it in the book as well, which is you got to get outside more, Damien. Get out, um, you know, get out in your local mountains, get out in in the local hills, and turn something that could be that sounds like drudgery into um, something that's enjoyable. So that was a big a big shift for me. There's a nice uh, mountain, the uh, Grouse Grind is about 800 meters in elevation. And what's great about it, it has a tram. Um, so you could, you could do hikes up that. When I started to do loaded climbs, it was nice not to have to dump and find water. I could just carry a sandbag and sort of tram down whenever um, the legs weren't feeling into going down. So, and then just getting up to, to Whistler, there's some great slack country up there and, and, and doing some ski mountaineering and getting out with, with friends. Um, at least for for part of that workout, really was a was a game changer. I mean, we I, I would think most of us are while we have an objective. Um, if if the push in the training is is twenty four weeks, you you got to make it make it fun, especially if you're going to do it more than once. And it was those those climbs, those um, time in the backcountry, doing things and trying to make it training um, while having fun was a real sort of motivating and re-energizing um thing to have done yeah i think you, you have to be able to embrace the process um mm -hmm. 
for a couple of reasons. One is it's a long, it's going to be a long and rather unglamorous, unromantic process. <laughs> and so you better figure out a way to enjoy it. And the other is that the, the outcome at the other end is far from assured. And for sure. so if you don't enjoy yeah. the process and you're, you're entering into this, this uh, you know, training program with this thing at the end of the tunnel, which in your case with you know, Everest or any other, especially 8,000 meter peak, there's so much beyond your control when you get over there that you know, I don't know what the odds are, but it's not, they're not great. And, and especially because you can't, you can't control a good deal of what's going to happen. So I think it's, it is, it's a wise approach for people to take is to make this something that you enjoy doing. And, and I've actually dealt with folks before who have, you know, they, they've come to us with sort of the, the bucket list idea of, oh, I want to climb Everest. And then when we get them involved in the training process, and especially when we can convince them, this actually might be a multi-year thing to get you prepared for this because right. you don't have this kind of experience. Eventually they find out, oh, I love climbing mountains. It's no, no longer just about Everest. Yeah. It's about the, yeah. developing this love of being in the mountains and climbing. And uh, you know, obviously, not obviously, but I mean, at some point, many of them will want to climb something like Everest. But along the way, I've often found they, they become mountaineers or in this yeah. process, you know, they, they yeah. actually start to develop this, you know, real sense of what the mountains do for people. And it no longer is just something to, to tick off a list. And I, so I think that process is an important component of this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And Scott, you just yeah. triggered me on something because we had talked a little bit about some of the, the documents that I wanted to kind of share and like yeah, what we were doing. Absolutely. So our team was, was trying to do some, um, and I especially wanted to do this was get some evidence on, on some things that would allow us to kind of separate the snake oil from what actually has some evidence or um, has been tried. And there's, and I'll, I'll send you these documents and you can include it in, in the show notes. But one of the things you talked about was odds. There's actually a paper out there. I didn't realize this. I'll track it down, but it talks about the odds of success based on age experience and the time you're actually climbing Everest and they um, morbidly or not, they kind of break it down to summiting and summiting um, with success, I think, which is like you summit, but you die versus you summit and, and actually get down safely. Um, so I was actually able to figure out the percentage likelihood of success, which I based on my age is like 55% with their data, which, I, you know, it's yeah, Damon, that's more of a like flipping a coin. Sure. Um, but when you at least you can at least look at the, the the data set of people that were included in this and maybe weigh yourself against your your odds, and if you're a kind of guy like like me who really was going in more or less, well first eight thousand or I wanted as as much information as I could get, so I could I'll send you that if if people are yeah, interested. In, I think people in, would be uh, would like to see that. Yeah, where was that study done or who did that? Who, who? Uh, I can't, I, I, honestly, I don't want to talk in too much detail about it, but I'll send it to you. Um, but they had broken it down basically from, I think, uh, I think until 2000, up until 2009 and then 2009 beyond, because um, they recognize that there's been a major change in how people are, are climbing the mountain. Yeah. So, sure. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, Going back to the mountain again, um, mm -hmm. what was your experience? I mean, how many rotations did you do? Were there, I mean, adverse weather this year for you? I know you, I know you bumped into my friend David Gotler when you were there. Yeah, um, I, kind of give us I saw him running by us. Um, yeah, so I, our itinerary was a little bit compressed. Um, 
and we can dive into that a little bit more. But uh, we basically used uh, some like helicopters to, um, we used hypo the hypoxic tents at, at home and we flew directly to, uh, to Namche. Spent a couple of days at Namche and we flew up to, um, uh, and Namche is 3,500 meters. And then we flew up to uh, Dingboche, which is around, I think, what did I put on that? That was 40, 4,400 meters. Spent another two days there. And we did some, uh, we went up to um, uh, Chukung and there's a, a little uh, ridge there called Chukung Ri that's about 5,500 meters we climbed for acclimatization. And then after that, we headed over to um, uh, to Lobache and then it was Lobache directly to uh, Everest Base Camp. We stayed there one night and then we came back to um, Lobache High Camp and then summited Lobache. And then what that does, it seems to be a more common thing than now, but uh, it just avoids one rotation through the ice fall. And that's 60, about 6,100 meters. And then after, after that, we just helicoptered back to, uh, to base camp um, and then got ready for our next rotation through the ice fall, which was uh, ice fall to camp one. Um, so that's 600 meters and then stayed the night there, then went up to and touched camp two and stayed a few nights there. So that's 6,500 meters. And then we did one other trip up to the, the Berkshund of the, the Lhotse face, which is roughly 6,800 meters. And then we came down and we did a, um, a touch grass in, in Namche. Again, helicopter assisted, stayed there for three days and then came back. Um, and then did our, our, um, our push on the, I think it started on the 12th. That was direct to camp two, camp two to camp three. Um, camp three to four, and then four, we summited Everest, came back down, and then we went to Lhotse High Camp, summited Lhotse, and and um, and then came back. Um, and just to be transparent here, we used oxygen from Camp Two. Um, uh, flow rates were uh, lower, obviously lower down, but max flow rates when we were summiting were like maybe two to three. So um, that was that was encapsulating like our that's our that was our plan, and it worked out well. Um, we had planned for oxygen. We had planned for like a Sherpa assist. It was, it was one-to-one. -one. And then whenever we lost one of our, our colleagues due to uh, hate, we, we kept that Sherpa on board with us just to um, not to tax the other Sherpas as much who were carrying, carrying loads. Mm -hmm. um, and then the weather window, I, I, I mean, it was fantastic. Um, I think it was, I think the first summit was maybe on the 10th and then there was a number of, of windows. So, it, we really lucked out in terms of, of congestion. There was um, just not the same amount of, of congestion. Um, there were, there was nobody during when we were summiting anyway, coming over from the, the Chinese side or the Tibetan side. Um, so that made things easier. And we had left uh, early in the morning on, um, on the 14th at about eight o'clock. And we got to the summit um, by I think three three thirty that that night, um, it was a li little disappointing. I'm going to say just because we didn't have those epic views that a lot of my my colleagues said we didn't have the sun wasn't up. We had a full moon which was nice, so you could see uh, it was fantastic. You could see into Tibet, great views from Makalu, lightning storm over top of it, and then of course when we were descending down, we had the uh, the sun coming up and got some some great views and didn't have a problem with congestion on that that Hillary step. It was pretty slow moving. I think we were like the third and and fourth people up there, um, Temba, Bota, and I. So it was it was nice. We just got up there, 
got our, our photos to prove to family that we did it and, um, and got back down. But the entire time it was, especially after we have the oxygen on, it really is a game changer. You're just, you know, it takes a little bit of the suffering off. I remember when we redid that first pitch up to camp three, which arguably is, is the most difficult because traditionally most people don't use oxygen to that push. Um, we were just in, enjoying it. Larry and I were like, this is, um, this is fantastic. Look at these views. You know, you got Numsi off to, to the right and like the, the Lotse face. And uh, yeah, it was just, a, it was an inc- incredible. And we all felt very strong because of uh, the, the training program that we had went through. And obviously the, uh, the oxygen helps too. And so did you choose to climb at night just to avoid the crowds or uh, because obviously it's much colder then? Yeah, well, that, you know, Scott, that was the other thing. So there was no, uh, there was no jet stream, or at least not during the typical time. Um, and there were summit window. I think most people summit around 18 to 23. I think that's when the majority of the summits happen. But mm-hmm. the summit window was so long because the winds were low and, and it was, it was, I mean, pretty warm. I think it was like maybe minus, minus 10. I'd have to double check that. But it, oh, the, it was lovely weather. I had gloves on like um, the entire time. I didn't have to put any mittens on. Um, so again, really lucked out with that, that weather window and, and, and certainly summiting on a full moon was, was nice as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sounds, sounds ideal. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, that's what we were just talking about. There's a lot beyond your control in this case, mm-hmm. the weather was on your side. So it made totally. It yeah. A totally different experience than. But I'm sorry, I didn't really answer your question. Why do we leave at that time? I, I think our um, uh, Temba was a little bit worried about some of, of the colleagues that we had that might not be able to, to get up and wanted to start out uh, earlier to allow for more time on, on the mountain. Um, and so that, that was, that was part of it. Um, and I, I, I well, I, I know one of the biggest risks or one of the, certainly one of the risk factors you need to consider on this climb is that it's, is that Hillary step and the congestion that can happen there. So um, he was very much aware of that. And the, it was minimally congested when, when we came, when we well, it wasn't at all when we came up, but certainly when we came down to, it was very easy to negotiate and get around people. Good. Yeah. I know that has in the past been a big problem for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so you, I'm sure this has had a significant effect on you know, your life, you know, it's, you know, it's now it's a, it's a goal that you've accomplished and I'm sure you learned things about yourself and then things you want to take forward. What are some of the lessons you think you brought home with you from this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a, I mean, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, well, just how much I love the mountains, right? You, what's great about this is, especially when you're, you're well-trained and you've covered all the variables or addressed them all. Um, and you show up prepared and uh, something goes as well, it's, it, you get an incredible sense of achievement um, from that and, uh, and, and gratitude, of course, because it takes a, a lot of people to, to, to get you uh, up there. Um, but in terms of um, you know, lessons, lessons learned for me, I think there's a couple of things. One of them is um, the, oxygen, uh, the, the oxygen issue. So with that, I, I carried a one oxygen tank and our Sherpas carried spares. I, I, I think that was an error on my part. Um, I certainly felt strong enough to carry it. And, it, and what kind of gets at me is, is seeing, uh, there's some unfortunate um, souls who have lost their lives up there and their remains are, are still there and are a somber reminder of how 
challenging this this can be when things go wrong um and and that was something i had reflected on things had gone exceedingly well for us um giving like a false sense that you know this is easier than it is and um what i i i should have had a spare auction tank i should have just carried it myself because that's mission essential equipment for for me alone i don't think that should be on my sherpa's back so that was something that um um i i learned and i think yeah i'll just have to to do that in the future is mission essential equipment should be if it's mission essential to you alone then you should have it on your body um so that was one thing um the other thing um and i chatted with rebecca and so i shout out to her she was very helpful kind of dialing in the nutrition piece but we had talked a little bit about um muscle wasting uh when you're in the mountain there's uh, you know the food especially at the everest base camp track is not necessarily the best so usual load of protein is it can be a bit challenging to to get um so what i brought was a bunch of big bag of protein which ended up being useless because I, I think what what you need is you need individual serving sizes. Um, unfortunately, that means more more garbage. But if you uh, if you just got a big bag of, of protein, you're you need to have stuff in individual pouches. Um, less so for maybe the um, recovery recovery drinks, but certainly for uh, for snacks, um, those things need to be easily to get into you. Like O Henry bars, those mini O Henry bars you get on Halloween, I found were really good. Um, so that was that was something. It's just the nutrition piece. I dialing that in a little bit more. When you said um, you took a big bag, I assume it's something like uh, <laughs> like protein powder or yeah, it was protein powder, like so bodybuilder type protein powder. Uh, well, this is something that, to be fair. Uh, Rebecca Dent recommended it has it has worked. Yeah, it's protein powder, um, and it worked well at home. Um, it even worked well when I was doing like an out and out and back kind of like shorter shorter hikes. But it just doesn't work when you're when you're moving up up the mountain, and, and I, I mean, certainly, it's another thing to carry. Do you even need to carry it? I, I just need to think more critically uh, about about that. Because what ended up happening was, Scott, maybe you've had a similar experiences. If you don't want to think about something and you don't know how much you need, you just throw it all in the bag and you take it all, and then you realize, yeah. like, I didn't even need half of the stuff. So, certainly, an indicator for me that some more thinking could have went into to that to dial that in, and just seeing some of the 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 more accomplished professional climbers up there, they've got a system. They've got a recovery drink they take. They've got a protein shake they make or something. Everybody's got some kind of um, uh, dietary regimen they, they follow. Um, but the, those are probably the, the biggest, um, the biggest, the biggest things I think for, for lessons learned for me that sort of stand out. And then of course, the other thing I would like to do on future trips, because I do want to get back up into the mountains is, is being more of a uh, of a contributing team member. You know, the weight is on the ship is on on this. Like, I I I, I don't want to sugarcoat this or falsely sell myself as a as a as a better mountaineer than I am. Um, I'm I'm a fit guy that has some mountaineering skills. We went up fixed lines. Uh, the Sherpas are are leading this and and helping us with with decisions, um, even certain things like kit selection, streamlining like techniques. Um, and carrying weight, like to be brutally honest. So I'd like to contribute more in, um, in, in that sense with the team. So it sounds like you've got some other plans. Anything yeah. for you right now? 
Uh, well, Scott, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> I'm still following your advice, buddy. I'm still taking the, the month and I'm just chilling out. Um, there is an incredible amount of, I guess you could call it like, I'll call it future summit fever when you're hanging out with some of these other people that are going up. Somebody, people are, are sort of biting into this, um, trying to get the 14 done as fast as they can. And what's the next climb. And I think it's important to take a, take a pause, especially, um, after our sort of like smash and grab, if you will, of, of, of this mountaineering uh, expedition. So I'm trying to, to slow down. One of the things I do want to do is I try to be a better, um, uh, like team climber with my wife. I've taken her on more send missions that have ended in <laughs> less than I ideal situations. So I want to go back and do, and do that. Um, um, just cause I think that'll be most uh, more enjoyable for, for both of us. And so being a better, uh, better team member that way, rather than just, uh, making brutane the, uh, the solution to any problem that we encounter in the mountains. And I think Denali would be a good one. Wanna, one of my colleagues suggested that that's a great one to, to maybe um, lead yourself and you have to do all the things yourself, the food, the uh, schlepping of loads, um, the cooking, water preparation, that kind of thing. Um, and with, with you, and I assume your wife is also an accomplished skier. Yeah, well, I, yeah, we're, we're good enough to, to safely get down the mountain, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. because I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, that's the way to climb Denali. You need to, I mean, if, if you're doing the West Buttress, you really should be on skis. But yeah? if you're going okay. with a guided group, they don't allow that anymore. So if you, if you okay. go with a guided group, they had too many people who couldn't ski well and ended up getting rescued. So they've okay. made it so that the, the guided groups have to use snowshoes. So if, you want to, if you're a skier, you huh. can't you have to do it on okay. your own anyway. But I think, yeah, with your experience and the fact that you're a skier, it makes that mountain a completely different experience to, to be able to, to ski when you're there. Okay. Um, because you can move so much faster with so much less effort. And, you know, if you're doing, if you're shuttling loads between those lower camps, you know, you, you drop your load, you have a drink of water and a candy bar, and like 15 minutes later, you're back in the camp that you yeah, left. That's <laughs> appealing. Well, let me ask you this. So with the footwear, I know, like, for instance, there's some of these mountaineering boots that are coming out, these 8,000-meter boots that are coming out with the, uh, the toe uh, binding that would allow for, like, a pin binding to work. Were you still climbing this with uh, a ski boot, or would that be I've done it a few times or? in ski boots, yeah. I, okay. I, I once, a long time ago, oh gosh, I don't even remember how long it was, the first of those lace-up, you know, looks like a regular, you know, plastic double boot. This is before all of these modern boots with the built-in super gators and all that. But yeah. somebody, I forgot which company it was, made, like, look like a normal plastic mountaineering double boot with okay. the DinaFit binding system built into the boot, but huh. they skied terribly. They were just terrible okay. for skiing because they didn't have the, you know, they didn't have the support that you needed in a ski boot. So what I've done on subsequent trips is I just use my ski boots and they're plenty warm enough. Um, and then, you know, I'll leave the top buckle loose. Works just great. You know, yeah. Okay. All right. And I think a lot of people do that now, um, climbing ski boots. And, you know, with these modern boot liners, they're every bit as warm as a double boot in my experience. I mean, I do, I'm sure, well, I know people use them on Everest. People climb Everest okay, with yeah. those exact same boots. Oh, okay. so, so I think it can be, be done. And um, that would be my recommendation is just take your normal ski boots. 
Okay. Um, and maybe I'll, I want to ask you about pick your um, mind on this as well. So there we encountered an avalanche when we were on, on the mountain. Um, we were coming up the, um, it's from camp one to camp two. So you're just in, in the coom. It's, it's pretty flat and you got Nimsa just off, off to your right. And we were with our, our Sherpa and he's like, Hey, check it out. There's some stuff coming off. Well, he didn't say that. He just pointed out to, um, what was an avalanche coming off of, of Numse. There was no sound from it. And my initial assessment was, okay, this is a pretty flat area. Um, we could just run to the, to the right or left of this thing. And he was like, no, no, just stay here. He just grabbed me and he's like, just stay here. And we were clipped into the, the fixed line at the time. And I was like, okay. Um, and then this thing just kind of, it was quiet the whole time. Um, and it just, this cloud just kind of came over us. And in about 15 seconds, it was, it was gone. Um, uh, in, in, and so here's my question is, uh, like, can you use sound as a way to avoid an avalanche? I, I, I can't seem to, to find anything on there that rules on it definitively. Like if there is something, if it's making a nasty sound, it indicates it's got more um, like rocks or, or something. Um, I've certainly been in, in rock fall before whenever I've been climbing and I, know, I can hear that coming. But with, with this, um, it ended up being the right decision. I just, I don't know if it was the right decision, but maybe for the wrong reason, <laughs> or we just got lucky. You know? <laughs> I don't, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for that, but I think it has something to do with the size and the terrain. I mean, that thing yeah. was probably a, a half mile away when you first saw it. Um, you know, well, certainly up. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. It was about yeah. 300 like meters away. Um, like mm -hmm. probably from, and then we could never made a sound and then it didn't make a sound when it went over us either. It was just wind. Just the powder. Um, yeah. Well, maybe yeah. you knew it was going to be a powder, you know, just a powder cloud that was going to hit you. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, but I, <laughs> my experience is when you can't hear them. Um, yeah, it's not a good sign because they're usually it's not a good so sign. fast. Yeah. Okay. Usually well, yeah. Really okay. Fast. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, I'll have to do a deeper but dive I, on that I one. Don't, I'm not trying to make any judgment on the decision that he or you made. Uh, I, I probably would have been, I'd have been afraid wanted to run. Probably. Um, well, yeah, that's what we did. I was like, I can book it. I'm going to be fine. Um, and then Kaji, well, he knew it. He was, he's been on the mountain a number of times. He just was like, yeah, just there. And it kind of, yeah, just washed over us and we were fine. And it was just and dust. I, so, and I know that yeah. that Western Coombe does have significant avalanche hazard. There's been some mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. accidents there in the past where, Avalanches come down both off the west shoulder of Everest and off of uh, Noopsey. So I think yeah. it's yeah, it's a dangerous place. I mean, you'll see the same yeah. thing when you're in Alaska. It's huge terrain, lots of snow, and there. You know, I've seen avalanches there coming off of of Hunter that you know come down off the north face of Hunter, cross the um, southeast fork of the Kehiltna, and go you know almost a thousand meters up the other side and shoot over into the next valley. I mean, it's just oh, wow. okay. phenomenal when you see that and you just real. I mean, there would have been no way to run. <laughs> there's, if, some, if you were in the path of something like that, there's no running away from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's until you have been in that type of terrain and seen that, you just can't even imagine the, the magnitude and the power. Um, and I think for me, and I, and I would think for a lot of people, that it's part of you know, being in, a, in, a, in an environment like that where, you know, 
it, you know, yeah, maybe there's no predators there, but you're, <clears throat> excuse me, you're a long way from the top of the food chain, food chain in a yeah. situation like that. And you know, yeah, you're indeed. really at, at the mercy of the mountain. And, and I find that you know, we as a species, and you know, I think especially uh, Westerners, you know, humility isn't something we have an excess amount of. And I think being in those situations, and I think it, it's humbling to be in mountain terrain like that and mm. realize just how puny you really are. Um, I think that's, for me, has been one of the, the things that's always drawn me back to the mountains is to you know, face that, that you know, kind of eat some humble pie, so to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and that was one of the things that we had talked about too as a group was just, you know, trust, trust your Sherpa. We had even, we had had some experiences where we saw people arguing with their Sherpa on the mountain. And um, we know these guys have done this multiple times and um, I'm aware of the, the halo effect. Um, and I don't, I'm not, I'm, a, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about just like trusting these guys. It doesn't mean you hand over everything to them, but they've been in the mountain and they, they've seen these things before and, you know, you got to rely on them. Uh, for these you just gotta trust them yeah yeah i mean i think that i i all the guides i know that work on eight thousand meter peaks have a tremendous amount of respect for those the sherpa and yeah. you know, rely on them heavily you know, it's, there's there they spend more time there than than any westerner so gonna have yeah a exactly sense of it yeah yeah well, yeah, indeed. Well, maybe this is just a good point of time just to thank a few of these guys. Um, our you team, Sherpa, uh, Scott, was, was fantastic. I, like I said, I climbed with uh, Temba Bota. He was our, uh, our, our, our lead guide. Um, he's from uh, Paakole. I climbed with him on Amadablam. And again, he led us on, um, on Everest and, and Lhotse. And, and I mean, here's a guy, right, that's carrying loads for us. We get down from... Uh, uh, from the South Col, we get down to high camp for Lhotse and there's no tents. And he's like, where the heck are the tents are supposed to be set up? This guy put us in it, Larry and I in a tent, went and carved a, a tent platform for himself and the other Sherpa that we had, um, Kaji Sherpa, and uh, and just got, got things done. So just incredible stamina and very impressed with this fellow. And then Kaji Sherpa from uh, Nurbu Gaon, another Sherpa with us. Ming, uh, Mingma Wangchu Sherpa from uh, Tashi Gaon and uh, Gelgen Sherpa from uh, Nabin Gaon. We, we really lucked out, Scott. I can't say it enough. These guys were, were skilled, strong uh, mountaineers, and we were very, very fortunate to have them with us. Yeah, they're wonderful people, too. Just I've, my experience has been great dealing with those guys. I like them. Yeah. And so when, you're, when you went to, did you go right to Lhotse the next day, or how did you? Yeah, we just got down from from Everest. Uh, we took a, I think maybe a one to two hour break just to get some fluids in and a bit of food, and then we headed down to um, to high camp. Um, and then um, we we left at eleven thirty that that night, and again uh, got got to the summit at just around six thirty, which was which was lovely. Looking back on Everest, you could see the headlamps of people going up. Um, yeah, it was a, it was another another great successful climb. Were there many folks on Lhotse that day? Yeah, there was. Um, we were the the first. Um, I think we were the more or less the first crew crew up there. We ran into to Nim's die coming down. He was going up without oxygen, just looking like a, a machine. And his and his group of people um, and some other uh, mountaineers from from all over. So yeah, it was. Uh, but it was it was definitely quieter than uh, than Everest, which was which was nice. Yeah. 
And so how much would you say, how much fatigue do you feel like you were, were carrying? Was it really noticeable for you on the second day, that day on Lutze? I, no, it, it, it wasn't really that, that bad, actually. I, I, again, and I, I think one of the things was is Temba was, was leading the charge most of, of the time. I take the lead sometimes. But what I liked about having him in front is he just knows how to pace. Yeah. I, I wonder if I would have just gone too fast and maybe uh, burnt out and needed to, to rest more if I was up in front. Um, but yeah, he just set a nice, consistent, uh, consistent pace and it made for quite a, quite an enjoyable climb. Yeah. But in terms of like burning in the legs or, or fatigue, I mean, you're, you're breathing heavily, obviously just because there's no oxygen, but certainly felt, felt great. Yeah. I was able to, because of my fitness, enjoy the climb, which, uh, and the oxygen, of course, um, to enjoy the, um, to enjoy the climb up there, which is, I would argue that's why you want to be, be fit and, so you can, I mean, we all go up to suffer a little bit, but uh, it's yeah. certainly nice when you can kind of have your head up looking around at what you're, uh, what you've been working so hard to, to get to. How much weight did you lose? Uh, I think about 15 pounds, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, so that's, gets back to that point I was talking about with, uh, with being able to like sort out the, the new, the nutrition. Um, have you put any I think, of that back on since you got, yeah, I, it, it got, I started back into, I do like a strength workout, um, mm-hmm. twice a week and maybe a little bit of like running some mild cardio and it's coming back. The muscle memory is pretty, I mean the, the actual like functional, like if you were asked me to go back to lifting what I was lifting before I was, I left, no, I'd be nowhere near there, but mm-hmm. definitely feel better than, than I did. Um, yeah. yeah. I hope this is, you know, gets people fired up because it sort of sounds like, you know, you could be a good salesman for uh, both seven summits and, oh, yeah. and, and the, the Nepalese uh, tourist uh, department. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are our quality. I mean, there is, I think, an arms race going on in, in, um, in base camp. And what I mean by that is it, it, this is this, this camp to be clear with everybody is about, um, about probably three kilometers long. You get a good view of it when you get up into the ice fall. And there are a number of different organizations there, like beautiful tents, um, tents that you're, you're one to, to a tent. The food on base camp was better than it was like along the, I mean, from Namche and, and beyond. Um, there was a bakery at Seven Summits. They had a bakery. They made us a cake when we summited. We got down, they had this cake. Hey, congratulations on your Lotsi ever summit. I was like, oh man, this is... This is incredible. There was a, wow. uh, there's also a tent on camp two. Um, this is something I didn't know, which I thought was interesting. The, um, before you couldn't have a helicopter go beyond base camp, but what they were finding was they were trying to reduce the risk of, of the Sherpas carrying loads through the ice fall, yeah. uh, namely oxygen and food and whatnot. So they allowed um, uh, helicopter transport up to camp one and, and two. And so at camp two, again, there's a, a lovely tent there. I think I might have had, and this is again why I love being in the mountains. A little bit of suffering, it kind of resets the barometer on on what is um, what is good, and you're a lot more thankful when you get home. But I had the best pizza cooked on a frying pan that I think I've ever had by uh, <laughs> this cook Sange. I he was anyway, guy was very talented at camp two. At camp two, I, I so. I, I mean, 20 I mean, this is like, what 21,000 feet or, yeah, yeah. I, you're, you're killing me here this is the, the other problem with the american team that i was with these guys are americans using the feet yeah it's like 6,500 yeah. meters scott so yeah. whatever that works okay. out too but yeah certainly um 
certainly we're it's it's not the, the the climate it used to be it's important to make that when comparing any sort of uh, uh summit now versus summits i don't know any 10 years or even five years ago i would guess um yeah seven summits puts on a, a pretty good um uh, a pretty good base camp and i would suspect that the other organizations are do similar it brings up brings to mind i'm i'm actually doing a, a book i'm reading a book right now that's written by one of our coaches uh leaf whitaker whose father okay. was the first american to summit everest in 1963 oh nice yeah okay yeah, and I'm going to do a podcast with Leaf in a week or so, and I think people, I would, I'm going to recommend the book. I'm actually really enjoying it. You know, I don't normally read climbing books, but I, I do. This is a great one. Um, it's really fun because, and he does exactly what you're talking about. He draws the comparison between, um, the book is called uh, My Old Man and the Mountain. Yeah, um, okay. And it's... Uh, and he draws the comparison between his experience. Leaf has, he's been coaching with us for a while, but he's, he's climbed, climbed Everest twice. And okay. but he draws the comparison with his own experiences on Everest versus okay. what his dad, what it was in 1963. And, okay. and it, it is such a stark comparison. I mean, it's, yeah, you can really see the difference. He's a good writer, so it's, it's, you know, okay. it's, it's entertaining. But it's also, again, sort of humbling. You think, oh, my God. You know, he, he talks about what his dad wore on the summit day. And you know, he was carrying a 50-pound pack and uh, yeah. you know, all, you know, all these yeah. wool trousers and <laughs> things like that. So, uh, but, yeah, that, you're, you're right. I mean, if, if it's different than it was five or ten years ago, it's really different than it was. Yeah, absolutely. Ago. But he's actually, um, Whitaker's, uh, there's a book, um, Life on the Edge, I think, is what his, is that what his dad wrote? Um, I've got that uh, yes, on my I reading list, too. Yeah. I wanted to check that one out. So, yeah, I'll definitely yeah, tune into that podcast. I'll be interesting yeah, to hear him talk about yeah, that. His, dad's, his father's book is that, yeah. Yeah, right on. Well, so people can look forward to that podcast and that, that book review. <laughs> well, well, Damon, this has been really fun, and I really appreciate your taking the, the willing to take the time to do this. I'm sure you got some other things that you're pulling at you in life and you've been gone for um, as long as you have, but uh, is there anything else that, you know, we haven't really touched on that you feel like you'd like to, to. Uh, no, like uh, Scott, just, um, you know, there's, there's a number. No, I think Art, um, you did that when I was, I was listening to you talk, chat with him, he did a really nice, I had a way of saying it was, there's a, you know, one person kind of gets to the summit, but you don't do it by yourself. And like, you depend on a lot of people and, and people have to sacrifice for you to get there. Um, my wife being, being one of those, uh, just incredibly supportive, um, and even came out on some, some training uh, with me, which was, was lovely. My work group, uh, kind of, this is during COVID. Um, we've got a, a group of doctors at Surrey Memorial hospital that, uh, you know, allowed me to leave for, for six weeks while we're, um, people are burnt out from COVID We're we're short staffed. So, uh, thanks to them again, thanks to, to you and, uh, and Re Rebecca. Um, it, it's nice to kind of have, um, to be able to go to you guys and we weren't doing the day-to-day -day stuff, but we had a number of talks that really kind of, um, were either reassuring or were allowed me to kind of refocus from things to, you know, cognitive offloading of this, knowing that you've done this before, this plan will, will work the comfort from that. So I could focus on, um, other things going on in, in my life. Even, you know, I, I remember one time you told, you told me, Damon, you're doing too much. This is too much training. You got to back it off or, 
Um, one thing that I particularly remember was, Damon, you, you just walk around the block for 30 minutes for three days um, and, and then get back into it. You're, you're, you're wearing out here. You're not re respecting the recovery time. And then, and then Rebecca, too, just being able to chat with her, uh, both about uh, just um, dieting, uh, I would call it dieting, nutrition for, um, for training, as well as some ideas about uh, how to um, deal with nutrition on the mountain when the food resources are, are just different. Um, <laughs> That's a good point way of putting it. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you for that. I mean, we that is definitely... You know, our mission is to be that resource for people, whether it's, you know, hiring one of us as a coach or, you know, talking to us on the telephone or hopefully the website provides that information. You know, we really do have a feel that a, a, we know there's a need for you know, solid information in all these areas about climbing these mountains and other mountain pursuits. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it, it's worked well for you. And I know it has. You and I have had enough talks back and forth. And, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the fact that you could hear some of those candid comments by me saying, hey, wait a minute, no, you shouldn't be doing that and do this and, and realize yeah. that it's coming from a place of, you know, concern and also, you know, the fact that, oh, yeah, this is not my first rodeo. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly it, right? You don't, um, you know, you're going to make mistakes and certainly you can learn from them. But if you can avoid making those mistakes, it's, it's going to maybe save you injury and a lot of wasted effort and time. So that was greatly appreciated. Yeah, people can learn from my mistakes this way. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, exactly. I, I, someone, someone was asking me about that not too long ago. Maybe you should write a book about how not to train. And I'm sure I could probably write a book that would be almost as long as the book we've written. Yeah, because I've made, I think, every mistake in the book uh, over my, the course of my uh, athletic career. So I'm, I'm hoping to save people some, a little bit of misery from that. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, and you know what? Sometimes people need the, that reminder, you know, of what, uh, what, what didn't work. And the fact that you're able to tell them is, I mean, I even see it at work. You know, we, we've got like some kind of process or flow problem. And you know, if you've got people that have been there for a few years, they make some recommendations that you know you've already you've already tried that don't don't work. So having that, you know, maybe maybe be a successful book. I, you just have to. Uh, I don't know. Would it be thicker than the uh, training for the new alchemism? I don't think it would probably sell as well. <laughs> how not to do something? Well, fair enough. Well, fair enough. Well, hey, Damon. This is I again. I really enjoyed our talk. It's been fun. I hope people can take away a few things from it. Um, and you're going to send me some links to a little, some resource material. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you useful. some links Yeah, great. to some documents, yeah. Put them um, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, that's great. Well, well, thanks again. And you take care. Oh, thanks God. It was an honor and privilege to, to chat with you today, buddy. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.